Well, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 15, you can see the title of this sermon in your bulletin is The Savior Suffers for the Sinner. Here in Minnesota, we have unique weather. Last Sunday on the way to church, it was sunny with blue skies. On our drive here, Sarah had mentioned that she had hoped that it was still, still sunny after church so that we could enjoy a nice walk. Well, by the time service was over and we left the building, the sky was full of clouds. Needless to say, we didn't go on a walk. That bright blue sky was gone as the clouds had rolled in. In our passage this morning, we're going to see something like this take place. Only it gets dark. Not just gray skies from clouds that roll in, but darkness covers the whole land in the middle of the day. And this darkness comes not because clouds come in and cover up the sun, but because God shows up at Golgotha. He doesn't show up to bring a rainstorm on the land, but God shows up to bring judgment. He shows up to crush His Son so that His Son would take the punishment for the sins of all who would believe in Him. And as we look at these final hours here at the cross, this is not only the apex of Mark's gospel, but this is the apex of human history. The final hours on the cross. So please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 and follow along as I read our passage for us, beginning in verse 33. Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him. To Jerusalem. 
Now, as we saw last week, Jesus was nailed to the cross at the third hour. It was the third hour when Jesus was nailed, which in Jewish time is 9 a.m. 9 a.m. in the morning. He was on trial around 6 a.m., and within three hours, the Jews, with the approval of Pilate, have Jesus on the cross at 9 a.m. But as I mentioned last week, the reason for this was not because all of this was playing out in the timeline of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Although they were glad to see Jesus hanging there on a cross, all of this was playing out in the timeline of God. This is God's timeline. This is all happening under a divine timeline. God was the one who put His Son on that cross so that He could be the final sacrifice for our sins. Yes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were fully responsible for their rejection of Christ. But God was orchestrating this whole thing so that He could make the payment for our sins because there was no sacrifice that was able to take away our sins. It's only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that takes away sin. And so Christ had to go to the cross to make that payment for us. And He was put there on that cross at 9 a.m. on that Friday morning. As we come to verse 33, we're going to look at our first point here, what we will call the final suffering on the cross. The final suffering on the cross. Look at verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Notice now it's the sixth hour. He's on the cross at the third hour at 9 a.m., and three hours now have passed. What happened during those three hours? Well, the crowd and the Jewish leaders and the criminals on the cross next to Jesus were hurling abuse at him, mocking him and abusing him. They mocked him. They insulted him as he hung there on that cross. But as we saw last week, Jesus also saved one of these men hanging there on the cross next to him, right? A sinner was given eternal life while literally hanging on a cross. Jesus promised that man that he would be with him today in paradise. He gave that man mercy and eternal life. But now we come to the sixth hour. The dark hour. In Jewish time, this would be 12 o'clock, noon. Right in the middle of the day. In the middle of the day when the sun was up at its highest and brightest point. 12 o'clock, noon. Notice what happens at this noon hour. Notice what it says there in verse 33. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, darkness came. 
Darkness came over the whole land, not just right there at Golgotha, not just there in Jerusalem, but over the whole entire land. Like I said, this is not a rainstorm coming in. This darkness, listen, was supernatural darkness. The sun goes dark in the middle of the day. For three hours, the most important three-hour period in the history of the world, it becomes dark in the middle of the day. Now, what was this darkness? Well, I'll tell you what this darkness was not, and then I'll show you what this darkness is. First of all, this was not a solar eclipse. This was not a solar eclipse. Passover was always held during a full moon. You can't have a full moon in a solar eclipse. It's impossible. Some people will say it was a solar eclipse. It wasn't. It's impossible. Second, it was not Satan coming to claim victory over Christ. People will look at this and they'll see darkness and they will say, Ha! Satan shows up. It's not what's going on here. This is not Satan showing up to claim victory over Christ. Third, it was not the Father leaving the Son as He hung there on the cross. Some will say that. That was the Father removing Himself. That's not what is going on here. That's not what the darkness was. What was this darkness? This darkness was the Father showing up at the cross. This is divine judgment at the cross. This is the Father giving divine punishment to His Son. This is the wrath of God being poured out upon His Son. This is the Son taking the wrath of God upon Himself as the sin-bearer for you and me. Listen to 1 Peter 2.24 And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, let me just be clear. Christ did not become a sinner on the cross. He did not become a sinner on the cross. He bore the weight of our sin on that cross and He was punished in our place. He was crushed by the Father who poured His wrath out upon His Son so that all who would believe in Him would never have to experience the Father's wrath. And it's now at this time that the Father shows up in judgment to punish His Son. How do we know that this darkness is the judgment of the Father? How do we know that this is the presence of God here at the cross? I mean, isn't God described as light in Scripture? He is. 
But turn over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is the Abrahamic covenant given here. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 12, it says this. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Notice, God shows up here to speak with Abram, who became Abraham. And what fell upon Abram? Notice in verse 12 there, terror and great what? Darkness fell upon him. And God spoke and said to Abraham. Darkness fell upon him. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Moses recounting God showing up at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy chapter 4. As Moses recounts this to the people, look at verse 11. In verse 11 it says this, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Notice this, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. What was there at Mount Sinai? Darkness. Because who showed up? God did. God showed up. In darkness. The Old Testament also identifies darkness with God's judgment. Listen to Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Amos chapter 8. Verse 9, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son and the end of it will be like a bitter day. What is Amos talking about there? What is Joel talking about there? They're talking about the day of the Lord. That day is the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's the day of judgment. That's what the day of the Lord is. Now turn back to Mark chapter 15. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. What's going on here? God shows up. God shows up. The Father shows up in judgment. And Jesus is drinking the cup that He spoke about back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? He said He must drink the cup. The cup of God's wrath. And for three hours... It's as if there was just silence as Christ endured the punishment of eternal hell there on the cross. MacArthur says, as 
God is the true power behind hell's punishing experience. God is the true power behind the darkness of Calvary. For here he unleashes hell on his son. The hell, eternal hell that you and I deserve. He paid the punishment there on that cross. Christ drank the cup of the Father's wrath as a substitutionary atonement for us. Now what's interesting is that none of the Gospels tell us anything about what happened between the sixth and the ninth hour other than that there was darkness. Tells us nothing. For three hours, silence. Notice what Mark tells us at the end of verse 33. And there was darkness until the ninth hour. What is the ninth hour? 3 p.m. From noon until 3 p.m. There was darkness. And there was silence. But then Jesus breaks the silence after enduring the wrath of God for three hours. And look at what happens in verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus spoke Aramaic here as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This shows incredible strength that Jesus had on this cross. Incredible strength. To be able to cry out like this means that Jesus still had unbelievable strength on the cross. Even though he had been beaten, whipped, his back shredded and ripped apart, his nails driven into a cross, a crown of thorn bashed onto his head, and yet, even with all of this going on, Jesus has incredible strength to be able to cry out like this with a loud voice. Because remember, we talked about last week what would happen. The lungs would, be able, would begin to collapse and they'd begin to die of asphyxiation there on that cross as they hung there. But Christ shows incredible strength. Incredible strength to be able to cry out like this. And he cries out here, and as he cries out, you also hear a cry of agony as he knows what he is under. Think about this. He has been with the Father for all of eternity in perfect union and perfect fellowship with the Father for all of eternity. But now, in this moment, He bears the guilt and the weight of sin, and He knows that the Father cannot approve of sin. And so He cries out, My God, My God. Why does He say it twice? Well, not only is this a fulfillment of Psalm 21, verse 1, but repeating a name twice like that shows affection. It's affection that he has for the Father. My God, my God! As he cries out in agony. 
Notice also that he calls him God. This is the only time in Scripture where we see Christ address the Father as God. The only time. Remember what he said back in the garden when he was praying? What did he say there? Abba, Father. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. And as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, he's not crying out in anger against the Father, but he's crying out to the Father. He's not crying out against the Father, he's crying to the Father. In spite of all that's going on, through all the pain and the agony and the suffering, what does he do? Who does he still cling to? The Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's going on here? The Father forsaking the Son? What's happening here? Well, this is a a great divine mystery of the Father turning His back on His Son. Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a great time pondering what this meant. And he came out just as confused as when he went in. It's a divine mystery. So we cannot fully grasp in our minds the full extent of what this means. It's too great for our small minds to comprehend because we're not God. What's happening as the Father forsakes The Son. It's a great divine mystery. But for a brief moment, the God-man was separated from the Father as He bore the sins of all those who would believe in Him. And as He became sin, again, not that He became a sinner, but that He became sin and that He took our sin upon Himself and bore the punishment for our sin, the Father had to turn away. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And so the Father turns His back on the Son The Father forsook the Son. One commentator says, in the sphere of the divine moral government, He was, as the world's representative and substitute, He was left alone with the world's sin, bearing it. Alone. To bear our sin on that cross. And the Father forsook him there. Now, this does not mean that at this moment that Christ ceased from being God. He did not. He never ceased from being God. Their separation was not one of essence or nature. 
but Christ ceased to have the intimate fellowship that He always had with the Father as He bore our sins upon that cross. For the first time in all of eternity, He does not have that intimate fellowship with the Father because He's bearing our sins and making the payment for us. That separation was not one of essence or nature. It's like when a child disobeys his father and is punished. There is no separation that happens there. Uh, there is separation that happens there just for a moment. But that son never ceases from being that father's son, right? And Christ, for a moment, is separated, forsaken by the father. And he humbled himself all the way to this point. Which is exactly what Philippians 2.8 says. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to this point. And the amazing thing is that he has already humbled himself in the incarnation. That is, He has set aside the glory that He had for all of eternity with the Father in taking upon Himself flesh. He humbled Himself in the incarnation by becoming a man, and then as a man, He humbles Himself all the way to the point of death on a cross. As He bears the punishment for our sins. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because of the pain of the lacerations on his back. Not because of the pain of the crown of thorns or the nails driven in his hands. Not because of the mockery and the abuse by the Jews and the Roman guards. But because of the separation that he has with the Father in that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does that for us. Look at verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. The mockery continues. They continue to mock him. Even a three-hour period of darkness over the land would not turn their hard hearts away from their hatred of Christ. And they continue to mock Him. Now, why would they say that He was calling for Elijah? Well, in Malachi chapter 4, it's prophesied that Elijah would come as the forerunner for the Messiah. Elijah is going to come as the forerunner for the Messiah. And so they mock him there. The Jews know this. They read their Old Testament. They know it. They know that Elijah is supposed to come as the forerunner before the Messiah comes. They didn't know that it was John the Baptist. But they know that Elijah is coming. And so they mock him by saying that if he really is the Messiah, then Elijah will come and save him. One commentator thinks that the crowd interprets the 
Eloi, Eloi, as Jesus calling for Elijah, not God. And so he takes this statement as them mocking him, as if they're saying, this poor deluded Messiah thinks Elijah will come to his rescue. The mockery as Jesus hangs on that cross to bear our sin. Someone then runs up and gives Jesus a drink. Look at verse 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, this was not the same narcotic drink that they tried to give him before nailing him to the cross. Remember, we talked about that last week. This is not the same drink. It's a different drink. John tells us that Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished, meaning that it's the end of those three hours now, Jesus then says, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. One of the soldiers then gets a sponge and he puts it on a reed, a hyssop branch, and he put it up to his mouth so that he could drink. They give him a drink. What was this drink? This was a a sour wine or a, a cheap vinegar wine that was heavily diluted with water. And they would give those victims on that cross, they would give it to them to prolong the torture and the pain. Give them something to drink so that we could prolong this thing, this torture. And they gave it to Jesus. And what did He do? He drank it. Which was actually a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And then they continued to mock Him saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take Him down. Let's see if Elijah will come. I mean, if He really is the Messiah, then Elijah's going to come. He'll be here. He'll show up. They essentially prolong his life with this sour wine so that Elijah can come and get him down off of this cross. Mockery to the very end. Look at what happens in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. What was this cry? What was this cry? That Jesus gave? John tells us what it is. In John 19 and verse 30, this was the cry of it is finished. Jesus cries out His final cry. It is finished. It was all accomplished. The payment has been made for our sins. The Messiah has taken the wrath of God upon Himself and made the payment for all those who would believe in Him. This is a shout of victory. Jesus' final cry is a shout of victory. What did the Father send Him to do? The Father sent Him on a mission to die for our sins. And what has He done? He's accomplished it. Mission accomplished. 
Sin has been paid for. And Satan was defeated and rendered powerless in that moment at the cross. It is finished. The price for our redemption has been paid And there is nothing more that you and I can do for our salvation. There is nothing more that you and I can do to earn our salvation. Christ paid it all. By His suffering, the sinner can now be made right with God. It is finished. Notice this at the end of verse 37, and it says, and breathed his last. He breathed his last. But listen to John 19 and verse 30. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Listen, listen church. The cross did not kill Jesus. The guards did not kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Jesus gave up His Spirit. He gave up His life. It wasn't taken from Him. He willingly gave it for us. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus goes on, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus gave up his life. He laid it down on his own initiative. In fact, Look down at verse 44. Look what happens in verse 44. Pilate wondered if he, Jesus, was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Why does he do this? Because he shouldn't have been dead at this point. He should have still been alive on that cross. But Jesus gave up his own life. As an act of his own will. He gave it up for us. It's amazing. And to be able to have the strength to shout out, it is finished, shows that he was not even at the point of death. He still has enough strength in him. But he willingly gave up his life for you and I as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And when he did that, notice what happens next. Look at verse 38. This is amazing. How God orchestrated all of this to happen this morning. What did we just read? Hebrews chapter 9. Watch this. Look at verse 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil is torn. Matthew tells us that there was a a great earthquake that happened at this time and the rocks were split. This is a supernatural event. The presence of God is still there and God is still working. 
Now, what was this veil? This veil was a large curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple. A massive curtain that was there. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in behind that curtain once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice and and to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That veil was a magnificent symbol that our sin has separated us from God. That's the symbol. Josephus tells us that the temple was 40 cubits high, which would be about 60 feet tall. Massive thing. Massive curtain. But the payment has been made. And God came, and what did God do? He ripped that curtain in half. God did that. How do we know? Look at how it was torn. From what? Top to bottom. Not bottom to top, from top to bottom, because God came and He ripped that curtain. And He tore it from top to bottom to show that sinners can now come to Him through faith in Christ. The payment has been made. The sacrifice has been made. And God rips that curtain and says, Now come to Me through faith in My Son. God was showing there that the sacrifice for sin has been made and sin has been atoned for through the death of Christ. Listen, that wasn't a moment of defeat, but that was a moment of victory. That was a victorious moment. A moment of victory there at the cross. We're going to see another moment of victory In our second point here this morning, what we'll call the first salvation after the cross. The first salvation after the cross. Jesus is now dead, but look at verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Who is the centurion? We don't know his name, but a Roman Centurion was a Roman soldier who had command of a hundred and possibly even up to a few hundred soldiers. The centurion was put in charge of the executions that day. There were three of them, right? Jesus in the middle and the two criminals to his left and his right. This centurion was put in charge of those executions. And think about All that this centurion has gone through at this point. Think about this. He has now seen the crucifixion of Christ. And that wasn't the first crucifixion he'd ever seen. (laughs) He'd been crucifying men after men after men. But he's now seen the crucifixion. He's seen Jesus save the thief on the cross next to him. He saw that happen. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He 
He's gone through three hours of complete darkness. Divine darkness. Over the whole land. He's felt the earthquake. And he heard Jesus cry out, It is finished. And then he saw the way that Jesus breathed his last breath. This centurion here had a front row seat at the cross. Along with some other soldiers who were there with him as well. And if you were to take all of the Gospels and you were to combine them, here is how the centurion responded. Listen to this. Matthew tells us that he and the soldiers with him became frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Luke 23, 47, Luke tells us that when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. The Greek word there for innocent actually means righteous. He declares Jesus as righteous. He's the righteous Son of God. And he begins praising God. Notice what Mark says, the centurion says, speaking for all the other men who were there with him. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, this is fascinating. Turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. It was a few years ago that we started in the gospel of Mark. We're almost done. We'll actually be done next week, next Sunday. But notice this in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Look at this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? The Son of God. Notice what Mark says there. Notice how he identifies Jesus. How does he identify him? As the Son of God. Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 5, we see the demons declare Jesus as the Son of God. The demons declare, and they know. But nowhere else have we seen in the Gospel of Mark where any man declares Jesus as the Son of God. Until we get to Mark chapter 15, and we see a centurion who says, truly, this man was the Son of God. He's the first one to declare Jesus as the Son of God in the entire Gospel of Mark. A Roman, listen, a Roman Gentile pagan centurion gets saved and he now knows that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Mark has been pointing us to all along. He started off saying, this is Jesus, 
The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Him. Now let me tell you all about Him. And it's not until Mark chapter 15 that you see a centurion, a Roman guard, now finally declare Jesus as the Son of God. Right there at the cross. And being a Roman means this man was a what? A Gentile. A Gentile. Here's what is fascinating. At the cross, you know who was saved? A Jew first, next to him, and now a Gentile right in front of him. Jesus came to save who? Both the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's on display right there at the foot of the cross. Luke said he began praising God. Why? Because he gets saved. How was he able to declare Jesus as the Son of God? The Father had to reveal that to him. The Father is the one who opened his eyes and opened his heart to realize this and recognize this. Just as Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Peter, you didn't say that on your own. My Father revealed that to you. My Father opened your heart to understand this and know this. That's what happens with this centurion here at the cross. Listen. What was the prayer of Jesus as he hung on that cross? What did he say? Father, forgive them. Did the Father answer his prayer? He did. Because the Father always answers prayer. He answered the prayer of Christ and he saved this man at the foot of the cross. A Jewish man next to him was shown mercy and now a Gentile commander is shown mercy. God opens this man's eyes and he receives the gift of salvation that day. That's the first salvation after the cross. Let's quickly look at our final point this morning. The female servants at the cross. The female servants at the cross. Look at verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. Now, notice how Mark puts this. Notice how Mark puts this. Where was the centurion? Look at verse 39. Where was the centurion standing? Right in front of Jesus. Right there at the cross. He had a front row seat. But look at these women. There were also some women... Looking on from where? A distance. Further back. Now, we know that Mary was at the cross along with John. Right? We know that. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there at the cross along with the apostle John. In John chapter 19, it tells us that Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Speaking of John, the apostle. There were other women who were there close to the cross 
as well with her. But now, Mark tells us that these women have backed off. They've backed off away from the cross. But notice this. They still want to witness what is going on. Although they back off, they still want to see what is going to happen to their Savior. These women have not left Jesus. They love Jesus. They're witnesses of all that Jesus has gone through. So that if anyone was to question what happened there at the cross, now you have these women who are witnesses of it. Not only were the Roman soldiers witnesses, but now these women are witnesses of everything that has gone on there at the cross. And notice who was there. First, we see Mary Magdalene. She's the one in Luke chapter 8 who was healed of demon possession. Christ healed her of demon possession. In the list of women, it's interesting, she's always named first. Most likely because she's the, the leader in this group of women. Then we see another Mary. Notice Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph. Who is James the Less? He's also known as James the son of Alphaeus. And he was one of the twelve apostles. Why was he called the less? Well, either because he's the younger one of the two James apostles, either he was the younger one, or possibly, more likely, because he was smaller in stature. He's a little guy. Little James. James the less. Which means Mary, this Mary here, Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph, Mary is the mother of an apostle. And notice who is there at the cross. These women are at the cross. His mother is at the cross. And where is James? Gone. Nowhere to be found. Isn't that what Jesus said? You will crush the shepherd. And what will the sheep do? They will scatter. But his mom's not afraid to be there. She's there. Then you have Salome. Matthew tells us that she's the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, the two apostles, James and John. And so you have three of the apostles represented there by their mothers. But the apostles are gone. They fled. But these precious women are there. They want to see what would happen to Jesus. Why? Look at verse 41. When he was in Galilee, when Jesus was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women are faithful servants of Jesus. They would minister to him in his Galilean ministry. They would follow him. Which means that they have followed Jesus for about two years now in his ministry. Two years, these faithful servants have followed Jesus around and ministered to him. Served him faithfully. Because they believed in him and they loved him. We have a lot to learn from these women, right? 
And you know that as these women are standing back at a distance and watching all that's going on, you know that their hearts had to be aching and they must have had great sorrow as they stood there and watched what was happening to their Savior. But I want to show you what happened to these dear servants of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. This is amazing. This is so good. Matthew chapter 8, 28 and verse 1. Look at this. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to draw, uh, to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said, notice to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Why were they looking for him? Because they loved him. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he's lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Look at this in verse 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great what? Joy. And ran to report it to the disciples. And watch this in verse 9. And behold, who met them? Jesus did. Jesus met these women and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And they worshipped him. John tells us that Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene. And then we see here that he appeared to these other women as well. Who were there at the cross looking on. He appears to them. They are the first ones to see the risen Christ and worship Him. Their sorrow was turned into what? Joy. As they worshiped their Savior. These women are faithful servants of Christ. And they're the first ones to see our resurrected Savior. And this will be true for all those who place their faith in Christ. We will get to see our risen Savior face to face because He made the payment for our sins. But listen, you must have faith in Him in order to see Him face to face. You must repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you do that, your sorrow will be turned into joy and you will have eternal life with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. He made the payment for sinners. And all we must do is repent of our sin and put our faith in Him. And for all who do that, we will see our resurrected Savior face to face and we will worship Him forever. Father, 
We thank you for the payment that was made for us at that cross. We thank you for the suffering that Christ went through. Lord, not just the the physical suffering, but we know of the pain and the agony that He went through as He bore our sins in His body on that cross and made the payment for us. Father, I pray for anyone who is here who does not know You, who is not repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus, I pray that You would open their heart now. Father, I pray that they would receive this free gift of eternal life with You forever. Father, I pray that You would open their heart, that You would save them, that You would grant them the gift of repentance and faith, and that You would be glorified through it. Father, I pray that as we leave from here this week, as we celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday next Sunday, Father, may our minds be drawn back to this text, to this great truth of all that Christ went through to accomplish salvation for us. Father, you're a great God a merciful God, a loving God, a gracious God, and we thank you for being gracious and merciful to us. Father, I pray that our worship would go high, that we would think less of ourselves and more of you, that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you. We thank you for our time here this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.